Welcome to Epiphany Brooklyn's podcast. I am Brandon Watts, lead pastor here at Epiph. Thanks so much for tuning in. Our desire is to join Jesus in his mission to redeem our city. May God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can tune in each week. Y'all find a seat. Y'all find a seat. Hey! Y'all find a seat. Y'all find a seat. Man. Hey! (laughs) Man. I don't even know. Let's just get into the word, y'all. Let's get into the word before I start acting up because y'all might not know. If y'all don't know me, I want to welcome all of y'all. Welcome to Epiphany. I have the privilege of being able to preach the word of God to you guys. My name is Caleb, um, and I know I've preached a couple of times here, but this is actually my first time preaching in front of Pastor B and Lady Ty today. So can you give some shout out to our pastors? So... If I'm a little starstruck today, it's because of our pastors, honestly, because I have a firm belief that we have some of the best teaching and preaching in the country because of Pastor B and Lady Ty. So we can give it up for them one more time. Let's give it up for them. I never want to be a church that gets too familiar with our pastors that we forget to honor them, that we forget to remember what a gift they are. And speaking of gifts, I have the best ghostwriter in town with me today, my wife. Can y'all give it up for my wife who, who helped me craft this sermon? Helped me craft this sermon. So without further ado, we're just about to jump in the, the book of Mark today, Mark chapter 2. We're going to be reading through verses 1 through 12. I'm not sure if the tech team has the New Kings James version up there, because you know I don't believe in none of the other version. But... but Pick me up at verse 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. It goes like this. And he, he being Jesus, entered Capernaum after some days. And it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, Take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. I love this verse right here. It says, immediately he arose, took up the bed and went out in the presence of them all. So they were all amazed and glorified, saying, we never saw anything like this. Look at verse 5 one more time. The Bible says this, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. 
Today, I want to speak from the topic, we got beef. We got beef. Every head bowed, all eyes closed. Father God, we just want to come before you. Lord, not taking your presence for granted. Not taking it for granted that you find time to be with us, to hear us, to console us, God, and comfort us. And we're thankful, Lord, that as we're just preaching about your power, we're also grateful that you are also a compassionate God, that you're a God that's caring, that you're a God that's loving. And I pray that I embody that nature of God today as I preach your word. Allow me to preach in power. Allow me to preach with conviction, but also allow me to preach with compassion. Bless the hearers of this word today, that they may see Jesus revealed and they will be able to receive him as he was called to be received. We say this all in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. We got beef. Now, for those of you guys who don't know, I, I work at, at an insurance firm as kind of like a mid-level senior executive. And I've been there for about six years now. And I kind of like it over there. Like, they treat me well. They give me a lot of flexibility. They're almost like an extended family to me. But I want to talk about the time I almost got fired my second week on the job. Now, for those of you guys who don't know, this was my first job out of college. So y'all remember how it is to get your first job, right? You're like super excited, but you're a little nervous. You're anxious. Like you have some anxiety on the inside, but you're bragging to all the homies on the outside, right? You're talking to them like, yo, we all going out to eat. It's on me. Take whatever you want. I got you. I got you. And so this was a big deal. And it's important to understand I was one of the first people to get a job before graduation. So you already know, the whole campus was loving me. The whole campus was feeling me. I'll be walking down the strip, and people like, hey, yo, money man, Caleb, money man, Caleb. And I'm like, yo, stop. you know how black people be. It's like, nah, that's all you, dog. That's all you, dog. Stop, stop, stop. And Adrian and I were already dating at this point. So while I was working, she was still in school. So you know she was eating the girls up. She was eating them up. She was like, y'all still dealing with these broke boys? What the heck? Like, my man got a job. He's in the city. We eat a Michelin star. Like, it's... It was crazy. It was crazy. And so this was a big, it was a big, it was a big deal for me that I got this job. But even though I was feeling myself, even though I was a little confident, I knew I was like, man, I got to stay humble. I got to stay humble because this is my first big boy job. This ain't Burger King no more. So I'm like, this is my first big man job. But I knew even at that young age, if I'm able to get everybody to like me, I'm going to be all right. I'm going to be all right. So those first two weeks on the job, I'm doing, I'm the biggest kiss-up you can find. Like, I'm getting people their coffee, I'm being extra helpful, I'm engaging with conversation, I'm doing everything necessary to get my clout up in the office. But then one day, one of my bosses calls me in, one of my bosses calls me in into her office, and she's like, you know, Caleb, the staff really enjoys you, you know, you fit in right in the culture, you're so helpful, you're so engaging, but... We just received word from our CEO that she wants you fired today. And I'm like, what? Today? I'm like, nah, this got to be racist. Like, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I was like, this, this got to be racist somehow because y'all need to, I hadn't even met the CEO up to this point. I didn't even know what she looked like. So I'm like, how can someone have beef with me that I don't even know? Like, what could I have done to deserve a firing? So my boss started to explain to me that one of our first weeks, one of my first days on the job, we had a corporate meeting with one of one of our partner firms. And my, no, my CEO was not present at this meeting. She wasn't even there. 
But word got back to her that apparently, supposedly, hypothetically, maybe, probably, I might have been asleep that entire meeting. Now, people of God, people of God, I had to ask, do y'all really think I was asleep? Do I? See, y'all some haters. Y'all some haters. <laughs> Y'all some, y'all, y'all some haters. Y'all some haters for real. Now, it, to be fair, it really depends how you define sleep. You know what I'm saying? It really depends because I wasn't like all the way knocked out. I wasn't like that. But you know when your head gets heavier than your neck and you're like, uh, 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 kind of like what y'all be doing during the sermon. Y'all you be trying to keep your head. You're like, uh, 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 uh. And so I'm trying. So to, to be fair, to be fair, it's my first time. It's my first time working. So y'all know the night before your first job, you can't sleep at all. You're mad anxious. You're doing like, so I was sleep deprived. And second, it was my third day on the job. So I had no idea what they were talking about. They were throwing graphs, statistics, numbers at me. And I'm like, if someone doesn't get me a five-hour energy, I'm about to be knocked out. So what I didn't realize was that despite me never meeting my boss, despite me never having a conversation with her, despite me never interacting with her, my actions were actually a reflection of her character. It was a reflection of her company. It was a reflection of her brand. And she just couldn't let that go. I I think a lot of you guys would agree with her that I deserve to be fired. Because despite all of my good intentions, despite all of my good works in the office, my boss and I, we have beef. Now, now, to be fair, church, I'm going to be honest with you guys. I have a very tough job today. I have a difficult job because I have to convince a group of young educated, successful, socially informed people that despite your best of efforts to be the best person you want to be, you and God got beef today. You and God got beef. But thankfully, Jesus wants to do something about it. Jesus wants to do something about it. So pick me up in verse one. Pick me up verse one. We're going to walk through this chapter verse by verse. And so verse one says this, and he being Jesus entered Capernaum after some days. And it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Now, this passage opens up in a commotion, right? The gospel of Mark wastes no time in showing the efficiency of Jesus. By the time we approach this text, Jesus' ministry is well underway. He's already preaching. He's already teaching. He's beating up demons left and right. So he's really doing his thing across the board. And by the time we we see Jesus in verse 1, it actually says that his ministry was so effective. If you read the verse prior to it, it says that his ministry was so effective that Jesus couldn't even openly enter in and out of the city without people bombarding him left and right. Like, people are really enamored by him. So when we come to verse 1 here, we see that Jesus seems to be retreating to his house. Many scholars suggest that this may be Peter's house. And the second word hits, the second the news broke that Jesus was in town, people rushed Peter's house like it was Trader Joe's on a Saturday. Now, I want you guys guys to put yourselves in these people's shoes. I want you guys to imagine if you had the opportunity to see Jesus preach in person. Imagine you had the opportunity to see him exegete the text because people would come from all over. Some people were sick, hoping to be healed. Some people were possessed, hoping to be delivered. Some were skeptics, hoping to question Jesus. But despite all of these different backgrounds, they all had one thing in common. They were all determined to see Jesus face to face. They were all determined to see Jesus for themselves. 
But out of all the people who were at that house, all of all the people who were in Capernaum, no one had the kind of determination than the people we're about to be introduced to in verses 3 and 4. So look at verse 3 and look at verse 4. The Bible says this. Then they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. That's important. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was was lying. Now, right here, the Bible introduces us to four men who are fighting to get an appointment with Jesus. We, We don't know much about these men. We don't know their name. We don't know their occupation. We don't even know their age. But what we do know is that these people are very familiar with Jesus. Like they, they had to be, specifically they were familiar that Jesus had the power to heal. So once news hit that Jesus was in town, they must have hit the group chat, right? They must have hit each other up like, hey, yo, man, I heard Jesus is in town. And one of them was like, wait, which Jesus? You talking about Jesus, Jesus? Because you know black people got to say stuff twice. They got to say it twice to be real. And it's like, yeah, man, Jesus is here, man. I heard he's at Peter's house. And I bet one of them was like, oh, man, I really want to pull up. But what about our man that can't walk? What are we, we going to do about our man that can't move? Like, ah, what, what am I supposed to do with him? Now, if any of you guys who are an older sibling, you might have experienced this thing before. Because y'all remember when you guys were kids and you were talking about going out with your friends? Like, there was a party or a football game or a movie that everybody was going to be at. And not only was everybody going to be there, but your boo was going to be there. So you already know your friends were hyping you up. You're like, man, you got to get there, man. It's going to be crazy over there. So you're getting your best fit on. You're getting your hair did. You're making sure you look all nice. And the second you're about to leave the door, your mama hits you with, hey, yo, if you're going to go out, you got to bring your little sibling with you. And then you're just like, hey, yo, bro, ain't nobody trying to watch them stink kids. Ain't no trying to watch them ugly kids. It's like, they're not even mine. Like, they're not my responsibility. You know what I'm saying? Like, and especially little, because you know, little siblings are going to mess up your whole flow. They're going to mess up your whole vibe. But what's interesting to me is that these men don't treat the paralytic like an annoying sibling no one wants around. You see, these men were so convicted. They were so convicted that the Bible says that they decided to carry this man, a man they shouldn't even be associated with, a man who's supposed to be an inconvenience, a man who's supposed to be a setback. But they were so concerned over him that they resolved in their hearts, like, you know what? We want to see Jesus, and we're bringing him with us. We want to see Jesus, and we're bringing him too. Now, what's interesting to me, what's really interesting to me is that these men bring somebody to Jesus who had no power to get to Jesus on their own. I need y'all to listen to that. I need y'all to listen to that. This man, without these four men, the paralytic didn't have the ability to get to Jesus. It was actually against his nature. But these men, their faith was so on fire. It was so tangible that it actually mobilized someone who was immobile. It actually propelled someone who was stuck. It actually lifted a man who couldn't move. Now, if you're not picking up what I'm putting down, I'm not talking about the power of their physical strength. I'm talking about the power of their intercession. You see, because these men had enough faith that they interceded on behalf of a man who couldn't reach Jesus on his own. They, they had determined in their hearts, like, you know what, even though he can't move, even though he can't stand, I'll be his legs. You know, even though he can't move, I'll be his feet. 
Even though he can't move, I'll be his strength. Now, this should sound familiar to y'all. This should sound familiar, but they were so concerned over his condition that they determined to be his help. Now, I have a question for y'all today. I have a, are you concerned over the condition of the people around you? <laughs> Does your heart break when you see the state of the people closest to you? You see, you, you see, I think our problem today is that we've grown so accustomed to trauma that we're numb to the brokenness around us. We're numb to the fact that people are dying around us and we've lost urgency in our evangelism. We lost urgency in our evangelism because even though, look, you probably don't know someone who's paralyzed. Let's be fair. You probably don't know someone who's paralyzed, but I bet you know someone who's stuck. I bet you know someone stuck in a place of sin, stuck in a place of despair, stuck in a place of discouragement. They might not have dead legs, but they for sure have a dead heart and they don't have the power to get to Jesus on their own. And instead of doing something, you're watching them sink in their condition. You're watching and being a spectator. And to be fair, Pastor B says this all the time, that our next growth is going to be through conversions, that we're believing as a church that people are going to convert themselves from dead to life. But I I don't know about you, but I haven't heard of a conversion that happened without intercession. I I don't know of any conversions without somebody interceding on behalf of somebody because you might not have to carry somebody on your back, but you might have to carry somebody in prayer. You might have to do a couple of home visits. You might have to sit with someone through their tears. And I want us to take an example of these men because we don't even know. Like, imagine these men might have needed something from Jesus personally. You know, these men might have needed their own healing. They might have needed their own breakthrough. They might have needed their own deliverance. But they, they resolved in their heart. You're like, it's not enough for me to be touched by Jesus, but I'm bringing somebody too. I'm bringing somebody with me. Now, now I, I'm not sure about y'all. I don't know what y'all do in your house, but I know as for me in my house, it's not enough for me to be blessed, but I'm bringing my daddy with me this time. I'm bringing my mama with me. I'm bringing my children with me because if I'm going to get blessed by Jesus, the people around me got to get blessed too. Now, y'all ought to point to your neighbor and say, I'm bringing somebody with me. I'm bring, I don't know if it's a church. I don't care if it's a small group. I don't care if it's that Bible study. Y'all need to bring somebody with you. Because these men had determined in their heart that I'm bringing somebody to Jesus. I'm bringing somebody to Jesus. But even though they were determined to bring this man to Jesus, their determination was met with opposition. Can I show you? Can I show you in verse 4? Verse 4 says this. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So they had broken through let the bed down on which the paralytic was lying. Now, you, you guys got to see, these men bring somebody to Jesus, but they encounter a problem. Right, right. The house is so full that they can't get near Jesus. Now, I want you guys to notice. Notice how it wasn't enough for these men just to hear Jesus preach. Right? Because if that was the case, they could have just stayed outside. But these men knew that they needed to get in close proximity to Jesus. They knew they had to get close enough to Jesus so that their friend could get healed. So, so they, encounter opposite, they encounter a setback, but this opposition doesn't shake their resolve. Right? Determined to get their friend to Jesus, they actually start climbing the roof. 
they get on top of the roof and they start removing the dirt. They start removing all of the debris and they use all their strength to actually lift up the ceiling and then drop their friend down through the opening. Now, I need you to imagine being in the house while this is happening. Imagine like, imagine that, imagine in the middle of this sermon, someone opens up the roof and drops somebody right in the middle of the sermon. Like, that, that sounds crazy. That sounds, it sounds desperate. But Jesus is enamored by their desperation. Jesus is moved by the, res- Jesus is moved by the lengths they would go to bring somebody to him. But Jesus, and Jesus being moved by their faith, he, he does something interesting. He does something really alarming. Look at verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Now take a pause right here. Take a pause because as Christians, as those of you guys who are familiar with the faith, this, this feels like a beautiful moment. Like, wow, Jesus is able to forgive this man's sins. But if, I, if I'm the four friends, I'm a little disappointed. Right? This is a little anticlimactic because it's like, look, Jesus, it's cute that you forgave this man's sins, but don't you see he has a more pressing issue? Don't you see? Like, are you, I know you're the son of God, but you might not realize this man can't actually walk. You know, this, this man can't actually walk, but, but Jesus circumvents all their expectations. Jesus circumvents everything that they say because when Jesus sees this man, he doesn't see what the other men see. He sees something deeper. Jesus is looking at this man, and he determined that this man is suffering from something greater than his paralysis. <laughs> Jesus looked at this man, and he said, he's suffering from something bigger than his dead legs. Jesus is looking at him, and he's saying, you know what? You might not realize it, but me and you, we got beef. Here we go. Here we go. He, he, he's saying to this man, like, look, you might not understand it, but you sinned against me, and I got to do something about it. Now, now, to be fair, now, Jesus, this statement is really significant. This statement is a big deal. We have to take time to look at it because Jesus is trying to teach us something here. Jesus is trying to show us that our greatest problem isn't a physical one, but it's a spiritual one. You see, let me show you. Your greatest problem isn't that you can't find a job. Your greatest problem isn't that your relationships are failing. Your greatest problem isn't even that you have a ratchet family. Your, our greatest problem is that our greatest problem has been and always will be that we've sinned against the creator of the universe and half of us don't know it. Half of us don't know it yet. Now, now I, I want us to take a moment. I really want us to take a moment, Yolanda, because we have to realize this man is paralyzed. He, he's par- like, th- when I say he's paralyzed, that means he probably has no wealth. He probably owns no estate. This man doesn't even have the ability to commit most crimes. So you have to ask yourself, what could this man have done to sin against Jesus? What could this man have done to have beef with Jesus? And and I would say to you that we have to realize that sin is not only an action, but it's also a condition. You You see, sin is actually the condition of being separated from God by way of disobedience. Can, can, can I break it down for y'all? Can I break it down for y'all? I, I really got to teach this before I preach it. Because if we go back into the beginning, we know that Adam and Eve were made in perfect condition. They, they, God made male and female, and he said that they were good, that they were without blemish, that they were pristine. But by way of disobedience, Adam and Eve separated themselves from God's standard and damaged their condition. 
I need you to follow me on this. Because look, their, their disobedience was so grave, their offense was so significant that not only did it exile them from the Garden of Eden, it actually exiled them from the presence of God. It separated them from having eternal communion with God. Now, I know a lot of you guys have heard this before, and it doesn't sound like a big deal. It's like, why is it a big deal that I'm separated from God? But I want you to be, imagine, imagine being eternally separated from your parents. Imagine being eternally separated from the one that gave life to you, from the one that birthed you. There's a sense of belonging that you'll always be searching for. There's an emptiness that you'll always be carrying. Now, I'm not talking about hyperbole. I'm talking about something that I know. Because when I lost my father, it felt like no matter what I did, I couldn't replace something that was missing in me. Something would be forever missing within me that I couldn't get back. And that's what sin has done to you. Sin has separated us from our heavenly father, rendering us as orphans, rendering us as abandoned orphans. Now, this is important. This is important because some of you guys are like, well, Caleb, I've heard this story over and over and over again, but I don't understand why I have to suffer for something that I didn't do. Why do I have to pay the price? Why do I have to inherit a burden that I didn't even do from people that I don't even know? And I will say this, you inherited Adam and Eve's burden the same way you inherited your mama's eyes and your daddy's nose. The the same way you inherited your granddad's personality and your grandma's temperament. The same reason why you look like your, your auntie and your uncle at the same time. If we can understand that naturally, we've inherited some things genetically, how much more in the spirit have we inherited some things spiritually? I want y'all to understand. I want y'all to understand. Because look, despite your good intentions, you've inherited a heart that's far from God. Despite your best of efforts, you inherited a mind that's separated from the standard of God. Because the same way this man was born paralyzed, he was born immobile, he was born without the power to get to Jesus, you and I have been born the same way. Because even though we were all made in the image of God, sin has made us incapable of bearing God's name. This is our condition. This is the condition that we're facing. But, but Jesus is actually declaring to this man that he's able to fix the spiritual malfunction that started in the Garden of Eden. Jesus is actually claiming that he can fix our condition. But I want you to notice how Jesus does it. I want you to see, notice how Jesus fixes our condition. Notice how he resolves our beef with God. Now, look at verse 5 again. Look at verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. See, y'all might have just missed it. Y'all might have, let me read it one more time. Let me read it one more time. The, the Bible says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, we really got to take a moment here. We got to take a moment here because notice how Jesus forgave this man before the man even repented. I mean, I wish I liked the gospel. Look, Jesus forgave this man before he even repented. We were just talking about how big of a deal sin is. We were just talking about how it's this big offense. Yet before this man could do anything to earn it, before he can do anything to deserve it, the more, before the man could even utter a sorry, Jesus initiated the forgiveness. You know, it, it's funny to me because it's, it's almost as if Jesus is trying to model to us that maybe sometimes our forgiveness doesn't require the other person's repentance. 
Let me say that one more time. Sometimes our forgiveness might not require the other person's repentance. Now, this man didn't even get to open his mouth, yet Jesus was aggressive with the grace to give it to him. Jesus was aggressive with his grace. Now, I know what you're thinking right now. I know you guys are like, wait, wait, Caleb, you might be a little heretical right now. You might be tripping. When's Pastor B coming back? (laughs) He's he's coming back next week if you're wondering. But but you, you might be saying, like, wasn't I taught, wasn't I taught that in order to be saved, I had to confess my sins and repent? That in order for Jesus to forgive me, I had to repent first. But, but I have to tell you guys that you wouldn't even have the power to repent if Jesus didn't pursue you first. Can, can, can I take it a step further? Can I, you wouldn't even have the desire to repent if Jesus didn't look your way first. Can I prove, can I prove it to you? Because I asked you, what repentance did Abraham show when God first called him by name? What repentance did Moses show when God appeared in the burning bush? What repentance did Paul show when he was on his way to kill Christians and God snatched them up on the road to Damascus? <laughs> you see, your problem is that you're filled up with a legalistic gospel, but the real gospel is that Jesus was willing to forgive you before you even said sorry. <laughs> before you even said an apology. Now, I'm trying to help somebody today. I'm really trying to help somebody because some of us have been keeping our forgiveness hostage until you heard a sorry, until you heard an apology. Some of us, and and I want to be clear, I want to help us out because I want us to make sure there's a distinction between forgiveness and reconciliation. Can can I teach y'all today? Can I teach y'all today? Because reconciliation actually demands repentance. You can't reconcile with someone if they don't repent, but you can forgive someone as long as you have the grace. As long as you have the grace, you have the ability to forgive because what we don't realize, the longer we hold on to unforgiveness, the more it's hurting you more than it's hurting them. (laughs) Tim Keller would say it like this, unforgiveness is the poison we drink, hoping that the other person will drop dead. (laughs) This is what unforgiveness does to us. And, and, and it's important. I really need to take my time with this because there are some things that God can't do in you unless you learn how to forgive. Unless you learn how to forgive. Now, I know some of y'all act, look at me funny. Some of you guys are looking at me funny, but can I get some Bible here? Can I give some Bible here? Because Matthew 6, verse 15 says it plain. It says, if you're not willing to forgive the trespasses of your brother, then God will not forgive you. It doesn't say that he might not. It doesn't say that he probably not. He said he will not forgive you. That means that there are some spiritual doors that will be closed if you don't learn to forgive. There are some spiritual things that God can't do in you unless you learn to forgive. And for some of us, the biggest person, the first person you need to forgive is yourself. The first person you need to forgive is yourself. Because many of us have suffered abuse and wickedness by the hands of other people, and we've blamed ourselves for it. We've blamed ourselves for the things that have happened to us. You've blamed yourself for the way people have failed you, and you've been holding on to this anger and this guilt for so long that it's actually killing you from the inside out. It's killing you from the inside out. And I want to be clear. This isn't to condone, belittle, or even justify what's happened to you. Because I want to I let you know that one day God will have an answer for all wickedness in the world, for all evilness in the world. God will be the ultimate avenger. But my job today is to make sure you're not holding on to something that God wants to release you from. God wants to release you from that anger. God wants to release you from that bitterness. God wants to bring you back home. 
But in order to do it, he needs you to learn to forgive. He needs you to look at his example. Because look what Jesus does. Jesus looks at this man, recognizes his sin, recognizes his offense, but he makes grace available anyhow. He makes grace available anyhow. But, but while this is a beautiful moment, Jesus' claim to have the power to reconcile us back to God is actually a little problematic. It's actually a little problematic, and the Pharisees recognize that too. Because look how they respond. Look how they respond in verse 6. Because the Bible says this, And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these in your hearts? So take a, take a pause, take a pause, because the Pharisees understand the magnitude of Jesus' statement. They understand that the only person who had the authority to forgive sin is God himself. They understand the only person who has the power to forgive sins is the creator of the universe, and that's exactly who Jesus is claiming to be. That's exactly who Jesus is telling him that, they, that he is. And so Jesus is looking at them. He's like, you know, you guys, why are you guys tripping? Like, why are you guys, why are you guys making this a big deal? But he responds to them and says something. He says something so interesting. He says something so fascinating. Look at verse 9 through 11. And the Bible says, which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven you. Or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. <laughs> now, this, now, this is really crazy, because for me, I love a good Jesus flex. I love when Jesus is acting petty, because it, it gives me an excuse to act petty, low-key, because <laughs> our Savior was a little petty. This, is, this sounds a little petty, but, but notice what he says in verse 9. In verse 9, he says, which is easiest to say, that your sins are forgiven, or to say, arise, take up your bed, and walk? Now, the reason why this kind of throw me off, the reason why this throw me off, because I'm not sure if you're like me, but I, I'm, a little, I'm, a little, I'm a little type A. So when Jesus said this, I'm like, well, technically, both statements are easy to say. Anybody could easily say, hey, your sins are forgiven, and anybody could easily say, arise, take up your bed, and walk. But just because I say it doesn't mean that it will happen. Just because I say it doesn't mean that it will come to pass. So, so the question shouldn't be which is easier to say. The question should be which is easiest to perform. Is it easier to perform the action necessary to forgive this man? Or is it easiest just to heal him? But the reason Jesus is so funny because the reason he phrases the question like this because Jesus knows that God's words and his actions are one and the same. Jesus knows that God's word actually demands an action. That just like the song says that God will do just what he said he will do. Now, this might be throwing you guys off for a second because you might not have met someone whose words match up with their actions. You might not have met someone whose actions are consistent with what they said to you. You've been disappointed by people who've made empty promises. You've been disappointed by people who can't follow through with what they said. 
But, but our God is so powerful. He's so powerful that not only does he have the power to come to, to, he doesn't only have the power to respond, but he actually has the power to command. You see, our, our God is so strong. He's so strong that his word actually demands a response. It demands a response. Can I prove it to you? Can I prove it to you? Because in Genesis 1 verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness roamed the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. Then God says one of the most powerful words in the scriptures. God steps out of all of creation, and he says, Let there be light. And the second those words left his, mo- left his mouth, all of creation began to respond. All of the world began to bend at the sound of his voice, and everything that never was fought to come to be. Everything that was without form fought to take shape. Everything that was without meaning fought to find significance, and then there was light. Because God's word demands a response. Can I give you another example? Joshua 10 says that Joshua's enemies actually attack an allied, allied nation. So Joshua actually gathers a garrison to fight them. But once Joshua gets on the scene and the melee happens, they actually start winning. Joshua starts to overcome his enemies, but there's a problem that happens. The sun behind them starts to set. And Joshua's like, I need more sunlight to finish off these enemies. So Joshua does something very bold. He does something very bold. He goes to God and says, God, make the sun stand still. God, hold the sun in his place. So God actually steps up to the sun and does a remix of Genesis 1. And instead of creating light, God actually sustains light. And when the sun heard the sound of God's voice, the sun knew that it had to postpone its bedtime. <laughs> can, I, can, I, can I give you another? Can, I, can, can we go back to the text? Can we go back to the text? Because Jesus looks at this man and commands this man's body to get up and arise. And even the man's body had enough sense to obey Jesus. And at the sound of Jesus' voice, the molecules in this man's leg began to combust. And it combusted so loud that the cells shot up from his leg into his spine, into his spine, into his nervous system, and from his nervous system into his brain. And as if the man's body was in a hurry to obey God, verse 12 says, immediately. (laughs) Immediately, the man arose, got up, and walked out of that room. Because God's word demands a response. Now, if all of creation knows to respond to God immediately, why have you been delaying what God told you months ago? I'll wait. I'll wait. I'll wait. You see, this is why why I'm telling y'all to get this word in your heart. Get this word imprinted. Start reading this thing because when you have this word imprinted into your heart, your life starts to respond differently. Your mind starts to respond differently. Your desires start to respond differently. Your emotions start to respond differently. And you need to learn that. And when certain situations come up, you need to combat it with the word. So that when your money is acting funny and your bank account is looking strange, you need to present your bank account to God and say, Psalms 23, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want and see the bank account change. When your marriage is falling apart and you feel like you're not going to make it, you need to declare over your marriage that what God has put together, let no witch, warlock, demon, tear asunder and watch your marriage change. (laughs) When your life is starting to hit rock bottom and your mind is starting to fall apart, you need to declare to the mountain of the situation, oh, I'm sorry. That was Haitian. I'm sorry. That was a little Creole. That was a little Creole. It hits better in your native tongue. It hits better in your native tongue. But it says that the right hand of the Lord is exalted and lifted up. The right hand of the Lord has done great things. I shall not die, but I shall live and declare the works of the Lord. I'm telling y'all, the word demands a response. 
The word demands a response. Now, now the question you have to ask yourself is that if the word is true, if the word demands a response, what response was required for this man's sin to be forgiven? What, what had to happen for Jesus to accomplish um, forgiving this man's sins? You see, Jesus knew he could tell his, this man that his sins were forgiven because Jesus knew what he had to do to accomplish it. You see, because just like the four men had to carry the paralytic to Jesus, Jesus knew that one day he would have to carry us to God. <laughs> Jesus was so concerned over our condition, he said that, you know, even though they can't walk, I'll be their legs. Even though they can't move, I'll be their feet. Even though they don't have strength, I'll be their strength. And Jesus was like, you know what, God, I like spending time with you, but I love them so much that I'm bringing them with me. I'm bringing them with me. But just like the four men face opposition getting the paralytic to Jesus, Jesus would face opposition getting us to God. You see, he would face opposition when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he got arrested. He would face opposition when he was in prison and they were beating him and put a crown of thorns on him. He would face opposition when all of Jerusalem yelled, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. But determined to get us to God, Jesus would start walking the path of Golgotha. Determined to get us to God, Jesus would be hung high and stretched wide. Determined to get us to God, Jesus would die on a Friday but raise on a Saturday. Determined to get us to God, Jesus would look at the gates of hell and said, release them and put them into my hands and none of my sheep will be gone from my hand. Determined to get us to God, Jesus died for you. That's the kind of determination God has. And my question, if God is willing to go through such lengths just to get to you, isn't he worthy of praise? Isn't he worthy of your adoration? Don't you want to serve a God who's willing to fight for you when you can't fight for yourself? Don't you want to serve a God who's willing to carry you when you can't get out of bed? Don't you want to serve a God who's willing to resolve a beef that you started? Don't you want to serve a God like that? Because this is the God that is being revealed in this passage. That he is actually saying that, you know what, you might have a lot of problems, but I can fix them all. I can not only fix your problem with God, I can fix the symptoms that that problem stemmed from. I can fix all the symptoms of your sin. I can fix all the symptoms of your pain. I can fix all the symptoms of your brokenness. And you don't even have to come to me because I'm coming to you. Jesus is telling to some, I'm coming to you today. And I want to bring you back. The only question that Jesus has for you is how will you respond? How will you respond? Every head bowed, all eyes closed. Father God, we just come before you giving you worship. And we give an opportunity after hearing your word to let our hearts respond to you. Let our hearts respond to you in praise. Let us, our hearts respond to you with revelation. Let our hearts respond to you with your spirit pouring yourself out on us. And God, I pray that as you're speaking, we don't turn a blind ear. That as you're speaking, Lord, that we get afraid. But I pray, Lord, that your love be so relentless that it pursues someone even right now. That you massage somebody's heart where they're sitting, Lord. If someone is struggling with unforgiveness, God, I pray let you meet their need. If someone is struggling with an answer prayer, I pray that you reveal yourself. If someone is struggling to understand your compassion, I pray, Lord, that you meet them where they are. God, I pray that you be everything that, you, that we need and even more. Father, I'm praying, Lord, that 
you do what you said that you will do, that not only will you forgive us, but you will restore us. Father, restore us back to yourself. Restore us back to the condition that you intended us to be. Restore our minds, God, to think rightly of you and see the world for what it is and see ourselves for what you made us to be. Father, I pray that you do the work that no man can do and that you save our souls. We say this all in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Right now, we're about to move into a time of communion. And this is a time where we can just acknowledge what Jesus has done for us. It's, it's really a time where we can get to remember. And we're asking, as the welcome team goes around, passing around the communion, if you haven't trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we ask for it to pass and you take the real thing today. Respond to the word and take Jesus today as your Savior. If you need someone to walk you through, we have people around who's willing to pray for you, who's willing to walk with you. If you are desiring Jesus today, Take him, for he's available to you. God bless you guys.